0: Hello, I'm Vas Christodoulou and you are listening to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. Every week, the Academy hosts the world's leading thinkers in live conversation and debate in central London. From entrepreneurs to social psychologists, political activists to theoretical physicists, it's a feast for anyone who believes in the power of ideas you can find out who's coming up in the next few months at howtoacademy.com. Last year, we hosted economist and Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, who told us all about people, power and profits. His new book laying out a roadmap for making American capitalism work for everyone. Matthew Standlin caught up with him backstage to find out more.
1: You are a Nobel Prize winner, so when you speak, people listen. Do you think that there has ever been a risk in your very important work that you bring your politics too heavily to bear on your economics?
2: I always think about uh, that issue, but I would say that my politics has been informed by my economics. That when, of course, when I entered economics, I was concerned about certain issues like inequality I grew up in a Gary, Indiana, which was a place where it was um, marked by extremes of inequality, racial discrimination, uh, labor strife, uh, episodic unemployment, you name it. It was a golden era of capitalism, but it wasn't so golden as I saw it. So obviously those concerns have motivated my entry into economics, but when I began doing economic research, uh, one of the issues I dealt with was, are markets efficient? Are markets stable? That's an analytic question. I entered it from the perspective of an economic theorist. You know, the, the lots of data, you could see the level of inequality, but I wasn't gathering the data, and uh, in the years since I became an economist, a huge Uh, Amount of research uh, has been done documenting the magnitude of inequality. But I began as a theorist um, trying to say assess one of the claims of neoliberal economics that markets are efficient that the economy, the pursuit of self-interest, leads, as if by an invisible hand to the well-being of society. The trickle-down effect. And the trickle-down. Reaganomics. And exactly. Factorism. Those are analytic questions. Um, that is to say, do competitive markets deliver in that sense? Is there a tendency for markets to not be competitive? Do our markets good in innovation? All of these are just basically analytic issues. And it turned out that the theorems, these are mathematical propositions, were unambiguous. And markets in general, even when they're competitive, are not efficient. But there's a strong tendency of markets not to be competitive, and that innovation often isn't directed at ways that enhance the well-being
1: of society more generally. Well, I suppose what I'm getting at, really, is that to a lot of people, economics is a form of science, or at least it's, to some extent, the science of prediction. But there is so much scope for coming from the left or coming from the right or being, broadly speaking, a a centrist. And, And what I'm wondering is whether you are... Ever influence in your desire, as I see it, for a fairer society where the proceeds of wealth are more evenly spread. Whether your economics and your forecasting as to what will work and what won't work are influenced by that, or do you see them both as one and the same thing? Well, by, by, in other words, by economics working, by the economy working, that has to involve working for more people than it does at the moment. Well. A successful economy, in my mind,
2: is an economy that has to work for most people. Yes, that, thats the definition of success. And and if the economy doesn't do that, it's not successful. But is it, is but, that every economist's definition
1: of success?
2: No, it's not. Um, but this is where uh, there's a difference between wishful thinking or political analysis and and hard right. scientific analysis when. I make uh, a forecast of what will happen with a given policy and I am concerned about creating a an economy that delivers more for ordinary citizens. If I'm wrong in my forecast, then those individuals who I want to help won't be helped. So in a sense, the given my concerns, it's even more imperative that my analysis be correct because otherwise the outcomes that I would have liked won't be there.
1: So when you predict that Trump will fail and that his economic policies will not work, and there are those, of course, who think that he has been a successful president in those terms so far, but when you're predicting that failure, that's not wishful thinking on your part.
2: No, it's not. It's, it's, it's a serious... Um, forecast. Um, And at this point, I think most economists probably agree. Uh, The IMF, for instance, says that the Trump tax bill, uh, which was not a tax cut because for a majority of Americans, when it's fully implemented, taxes will go up. So let's be clear. Uh, The growth is going to slow dramatically from a little bit over 3% to a little over 2%. Um, there's a lot of uncertainties, of course, and all forecasts are made contingent on that. But um, the fact was that that huge tax bill, increasing the deficit enormously, that money wasn't spent for infrastructure, education, investments in technology. It was spent to get more money in the pockets of our rich corporations and our rich individuals and that's not the basis of sustainable growth and i don't think anybody seriously could believe that putting more money in those pockets would lead to sustainable growth and the data on investment shows that
1: it hasn't uh, happened your beef is not just with trump you are championing a progressive capitalism. You want things to get better, and you don't think that that can be done, as you say in the book, incrementally. It needs to be big and bold. Before we get to your recipe for success, the premise of needing a recipe for success is that things have gone badly. And as I say, they've gone badly, in your view, more broadly than just Trump's nascent presidency. We're in July 2019 just now, to, to be clear. What has, do you think, in synopsis, gone so badly wrong over the decades well, growth itself,
2: as we measure it, GDP, is markedly slower than it was in the decades after World War II. In spite of the fact that we're supposed to know more about how to manage the economy, we have advances in technology, uh, we are supposed to be an innovation economy, uh, the rate of growth is slower, uh, about two-thirds of what it used to be. But even more concerning is that the fruits of the growth have gone overwhelmingly to the top one percent, top one-tenth of one percent. In fact, the average income of the bottom 90% uh, has basically stagnated. Um, the United States is worse than most other advanced countries, but the patterns are not dissimilar. In the United States, just to give you two more numbers that really en- encapsulate, or three more numbers that encapsulate what's gone wrong, um, real wages at the bottom, are the same in the United States as they were 60 years ago, adjusted for inflation. Median income of a full-time worker, uh, adjusted again for inflation, and the full-time workers are the lucky ones, is the same level as as it was 42 years ago. And life expectancy in the United States is in decline. And you don't think that this is inevitable? You don't think that that had to happen? Obviously, it's not inevitable. We are a richer country. Uh, we, we, we could have had uh, more growth, and the fruits of that growth could have been much better shared. And it's been true in our past. And why it can't
1: be true in our future? Uh, I've seen absolutely no reason. This, of course, prepared the ground for Trump for populism, and yet you spend quite a bit of time in your book arguing that it's the Republicans' fault. That's right, and that, that's a
2: sort of, you might say, the ultimate irony, uh, that the way we began you know, with, with Thatcher in the UK and Reagan in the United States, uh, liberalizing, deregulating the financial system, um, globalizing, uh, um, it was promised that that would lead to so much faster growth that everyone would benefit. Of course, some would benefit more. Inequality might go up. They admitted that, but they said the benefits would be so great that the deficit would come down and even the people at the bottom would be better off. And we now know that was a lie. And the problem is so do most
1: Americans know that that was a lie, and that's part of the source of the anger. You're a big dude in the world of economics. You weren't just the chief economist at the World Bank. You are also chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers under Bill Clinton for a while. And therefore, you are at the heart of policymaking, in, in, in a way. And I just wonder, therefore, given that the sweep of your criticism spans decades— when we're talking about the American economy, I wonder whether you feel that you guys, to some extent,
2: screwed up. Oh, oh, clearly they could have been so much more successful and we had, quite frankly, a lot of battles inside the Clinton administration, some of which I described in my book, The Roaring 90s. Um, I was opposed to the repeal of Glass-Steagall the Act that was the critical one in, uh, a critical one in, in the deregulation of the financial sector. Why I was there, mm. it didn't occur. <laughs> but after I left, uh, not only did uh, we pre- uh, repeal the Glass-Steagall Act, we passed a law saying that you could not regulate derivatives, those risky products that amplified their financial crisis uh, in 2008. We pushed for globalization most of us in the administration said it was important to have trade adjustment assistance. But when push came to shove, when the Republicans refused to provide adequate adjustment assistance, the belief in trickle-down economics was sufficiently strong that the administration said, let's go ahead anyway. So I,
1: my view is we've learned. Do you have any regrets from that period? I wasn't pointing the finger at you. I'm just saying that your analysis is that things have failed for a long time. That's right. And not not simply in a partisan way.
2: They have failed for a long time. And and I guess my, my view is that uh, I argued for taking more seriously the problem of inequality. Uh, I had others in the administration like Bob Reich who supported uh, that view. And there were... Several people who were on the other side. Uh, the real debate, in a way, or at least part of the debate, was given that the Republicans controlled Congress for during the Clinton administration all but two years, and the same thing in, in the Obama administration, could there have been a more aggressive egalitarian policy? That's a political judgment that I can't make, but I I, I can say you know I opposed. Give you uh, one more example. I was very strongly opposed to what President Clinton did when he lowered capital gains taxes. That was a, a, a change in the tax policy that benefited the, the very rich and in exacerbating
1: inequality. Exactly, because you are very much against the entrenchment of wealth, and, and you're a proponent for. It. Of land tax, for example, and, and I wonder whether you might also extend that to wealth tax. And we've got a thing in this country where people are talking about the mansion tax not so long ago.
2: Yeah, there, there is now finally in the United States a vast majority supporting a wealth tax on the very rich. And you know, we're talking about on um, wealth in excess of 50 million dollars. And interestingly, a lot of the wealthy people agree, they say. I rather live in a society in which there's more social cohesion
1: and less strife, even if it costs me a little bit. And given that President Trump claims to be a man of the people, on the side of the working man and woman, why is why is he not implementing such a tax? I don't think you should take anything he says at face face value.
2: (laughs) And we know that it's an irony, another irony, isn't it? (laughs) It's another irony. I mean, for somebody in particular who got wealthy, first by inheriting money, but secondly, by taking advantage of others. Um, Trump University was uh, uh, sort of uh, the poster child of a private university trying to take advantage of others. Uh, As a businessman, he took advantage uh, of his workers, uh, of his contractors, stiffed them all the time. So, you know, he comes to his office with a a record of a businessman that – isn't really creating uh, an ethical kind of business, but is really making money, doing whatever it takes to take advantage of others to make himself better off.
1: Now, you are a man, as I've already suggested, you get your fingers dirty. You, you, you've been very close to power. You, you, you want to make change actually happen. You don't just stand on the sidelines, point fingers like I'm doing at you, sort of, <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, and... Criticise. you look forward optimistically and positively, and much of the book is looking forward, and you have a route map to success. Give us one or two of the key points. Government, government working better, regulating free market economics, and and making sure that the rule of law, which has come under sustained threat under Trump, is protected. Exactly. So what I call for very
2: broadly is a new social contract between government, citizens, the market, civil society, one which recognizes there needs to be a balance between these various parts of our society, uh, which recognizes that government collective action more broadly plays a very important part in our economy, in our society, that we as a society can't exist without regulation. You know, the, the Ten Commandments are a set of regulations about what is acceptable and, and what is not acceptable, but our modern urban economy couldn't exist if we didn't have stoplights, which regulate whether uh, the order in which you can go through uh, intersection. Otherwise, we'd be in a massive gridlock. Uh, we couldn't breathe the air in London if we didn't have environmental regulations people will be dying all over the place so we shouldn't be scared of that word no we shouldn't be scared of regulation and we know what happens when you don't have adequate regulation financial we have a financial crash. crisis yeah. so so regulation is an essential part of our life now we have to design it well obviously and um, but as I look over the landscape, I see far more risks of inadequate regulation than too much regulation. For instance, uh, the tech giants, their invasion of our privacy, uh, their market power, um, they represent a, a real threat to our society. Um, but I want to emphasize collective action. Government is about more than regulation. It's about doing things Um uh, in the UK, you're lucky you have the National Health Service. You have government provision uh, of uh, basics of health care. In the United States, we spend much more money, 18% of GDP, and we get much poorer outcomes. Uh, why? Because we're being ripped off by the pharmaceutical companies, by the health insurance companies. Um, government plays an absolutely essential role in other aspects of social protection, like Social Security, old-age pensions. Uh, but government also... Is critical in why we have economic growth why we are richer than we were 250 years ago Uh, and that's because it supports basic research all the advances of our society are based on basic research and government is the largest provider of that basic research
1: and also a safety net of course the welfare state of which we are rightly proud in this country although there are plenty of people who think that it isn't robust enough that's right. I mean, social protection is is an absolutely essential part, so people don't uh, fall through the net when they the, net, the, the days are not as bright as they might have been when they're going through a down downward spiral for a bit.
2: Uh, that's right, and and actually, again, that can lead
1: to. Uh, uh, greater productivity because people can take risks. that's uh, possibly universal basic income as you mentioned we, in the book. You don't come out emphatically in favor of it but you're yeah, interested in it. I'm, I'm interested but I'm a little bit suspect because
2: to me right now The major problem is we have a lot of things that have to be done. We have to retrofit the global economy for climate change. Uh, We have a demographic uh, transition. We have an urban transition we're engaged in. Problems of, uh, of lots of issues that we face that are going to require more jobs, more employment. So the issue is we should... Uh, ensure that everybody who is able and willing to work can have a job and that was a commitment United States made right after World War II.
1: but we have not lived up to that commitment. Opportunity for all and jobs for all. That's right. It seems to me that the central thrust of your book is that while democracies have to protect minorities they also have to protect the majority and if the majority are losing out because the profits aren't trickling down then society as a whole is losing. In layman's language, in everyday terms, in just a few sentences, how can you and your ideas transform American politics and economics so that the wealth is spread out more fairly, that people do feel more money in their pocket and have better access to public services?
2: The foundation is uh, first making our economy more competitive and redirecting resources to wealth creation as opposed to exploitation and grabbing wealth. How does that differentiate from trickle-down economics? Trickle-down economics says, don't worry about anything, just get GDP up. And if you get GDP up, everybody benefits. We know that's not true. And we know that a lot of the people in our society who've gotten wealthy, have gotten wealthy by taking advantage of others, whether through advantage of market power, asymmetries of information, exploitation of the vulnerable. uh, And uh, a lot of economic policy is directed to enhancing that ability to exploit under President Trump. And so what we have to do is reverse that and say, no, If you want to get wealthy, that's fine. But do it through creating wealth, not taking advantage of others. And how do you do that, though? Well, you pass regulations that say you can't abuse market power. You know, in the United States, unlike Europe, if you have market power, you can charge any price you want as long as that market power was, quote, legitimately obtained. So you buy a patent... And you can charge whatever you want for a drug, raise the price a thousand times over the cost. So these are reforms in our
1: antitrust laws, our competition standards that are absolutely essential. So we have to believe in the state again. But the problem, of course, at the moment is that the person who sits at the apex of the state is Donald Trump. I've got three quick fire questions for you. Is there hope for the Democrats? Can Trump be toppled? Who is that man or woman? And what is their message, very briefly? Well, I think clearly uh, Donald Trump can be Trump.
2: uh, 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 Trumped. Trumped Trumped and trumped, yeah. (laughs) U.S. democracy is very badly flawed right now. The Supreme Court made another decision that further undermine our democracy. They've made a series of decisions, one uh, allowing unbridled spending in our campaign so that we are now more described as a one one vote than one person one vote. Uh, They then said there's no limit on the extent of gerrymandering. Uh, The gerrymandering is perfectly okay. Uh, The winner take all, Uh, you know, Unbelievable, uh, and we have uh, a Senate which gives disproportionate weight to rural states with little population. We have an Electoral College which gives disproportionate weight to small states uh, with little population. Money wields too much power in American politics, uh,
1: as you say, also in the money
2: book. Money wields too much power. Uh, our, our revolving doors a real problem. Lobbying has a real problem. So we have a flawed democracy. In spite of that, so many more people want what I think of as the values or reflect the values of the progressive agenda that I think the Democrats will win. Uh, The polling shows two to one among young people. Uh, you know, and that's the future. And, and
1: but they're not and going to beat Trump. He's going to be a two-term president, isn't he? Uh, no, I don't think he will. Do you really not? There's a forecast. Many of us might like to believe in. It's a political
2: forecast. Yes. So I don't want to pretend that this is based on economic science. And who, make will make who, who
1: will beat him? Who will beat
2: him, That's harder to say. But I think uh, the differences among the Democrats
1: are smaller than their united resolve that... But can he be beaten properly on the left by a really genuinely left-wing candidate, yes. a sort of American Corbyn? Uh, I think uh,
2: all the young, all the Democrats are uh, have articulated a vision which uh, appeals to a broad range of Americans. Um, one of the but critical Sanders, things. One of the critical things in America that makes uh, answering your question not as easy uh, is that um, our voter turnout is very low. And to win, uh, you can win if you just get enough voter turnout among the people who agree with you. And uh, among the Democratic candidates are several who a lot of people find inspiring. We'll see in the primaries who most Americans find inspiring, but if you get enough of those, say, young people to turn out and the young people who have not turned out, they, they are increasingly recognizing their future is at stake, and so I am hopeful that they will turn out. If that happens, uh, any one of these candidates I
1: believe could win. And in a sentence Bernie Sanders not too left for you?
2: No no he's not I mean uh, um, he has articulated a a set of positions on a lot of issues that Americans are really concerned about.
1: You've got to go on stage very shortly so I was going to ask you three questions I'm only going to ask you a second question now and that is at this stage, we just still don't know who, as I speak to you, is going to be the next British Prime Minister because, as I said earlier, we're early July 2019. If we were to crash out without a deal, and you'll notice the use of the words crash out there, can we nonetheless make a success of things as a country?
2: I think... Part of the problem is that you are going to be occupied for the next decade of dealing with the consequences. And a lot of people are already frustrated that you've spent three years talking about Brexit, not dealing with the problems of the U.K. And now you'll have another decade talking about the consequences of Brexit without dealing with the other problems that have been festering. And and particularly with uh, some of your leaders uh, in the uh, conservative party who want to follow trump in increasing inequality and advancing policies that will slow economic growth and increase hardship Um, i think you're going to have your hands full with a lot of difficulties going forward how scared should we be then I think you should be very worried and I haven't even mentioned some of the political rap- ramifications uh, how you're going to deal with the Irish question majority of Scotland voted to remain um, and the discontent uh, with uh, problems festering south of the Scottish border uh, will
1: uh, lead to almost surely new demands for just because you mentioned the scottish question i just going to fit in this final final thought which is that i've wondered whether left-leaning thought has become softer not just on thatcherism but also on reaganomics but you in this book you're scathing about reaganomics which i thought was interesting and i just wonder whether you think that history will be kinder on another man about whom you have been much less scathing in, in the form of gordon brown I think... You were a big champion of his, or seemed to be, well, in the immediate did, aftermath of the financial crisis. He he
2: did a fantastic job in responding to the financial crisis. I think all of those on both sides of the Atlantic that were uh, advocating uh, financial deregulation uh, have a certain responsibility for the creation of the crisis. So, um, you know... I think history is going to judge harshly Bernanke, who is given a lot of accolades for the response to the crisis by the U.S. uh, Federal Reserve, but who was very responsible for creating the conditions that led to the crisis in the first place. And uh, there will be some reflections in the U.K. on those who were in charge
1: in the period leading up to the crisis joseph stiglitz has been amazing to sit down next to you opposite you doing this podcast and may i just finish by saying i absolutely and always have absolutely loved your name it's a brilliant name it's the best name in economics thank you really good to meet
0: you good this week's podcast starred joseph stiglitz and was presented by matthew stadlin it was produced by me vas christodoulou and edited by john doughty As ever, you can enjoy more podcasts just like it at howtoacademy.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned in the next few weeks for some seriously exciting guests, including Paul Krugman, Elif Shafak, Ai Weiwei and William Gibson. Thanks for listening.